This play is not a history in the sense in which the word is used by the academic historian. Dramatic purposes have sometimes required many characters to be fused into one. The number of girls involved in the crying out has been reduced. Abigail's age has been raised. While there were several judges of almost equal authority, I have symbolized them all in Hawthorne and Danforth. However, I believe that the reader will discover here the essential nature of one of the strangest and most awful chapters in human history. The fate of each of the characters is exactly that of his historical model, and there is no one in the drama who did not play a similar, and in some cases exactly the same, role in history. As for the characters of the persons, little is known about most of them, excepting what may be surmised from a few letters, the trial record, certain broadsides written at the time, and references to their conduct and sources of varying reliability. They may therefore be taken as creations of my own, drawn to the best of my ability in conformity with their known behavior, except as indicated in the commentary I have written for this text. All right, welcome to the Capo Podcast. That is the opening of The Crucible, and you'll notice it's a little different because this is a play. This is setting the scene, and tonight we will be doing The Crucible. I still wanted to start with the opening of it. Now, I think that I'm going to turn this into a kind of, this is what I'm going to do with the podcast for the next few months, I think, is uh, basically curriculum lectures for most uh, mostly junior and senior level English literature. I do kind of miss teaching a little bit, and uh, I think I thought it might be fun to do kind of some of the best lectures from those two classes, American Lit and English Lit, and, well, not the exact same lectures. Lectures that are longer form and lectures that are, I'm not kind of shackled by my need to be a, you know, a in-class for high school kids teacher. I'm going to try to make them as clean as I possibly can because I do want this to be something where uh, if you are a kid that listens, you're in high school and you maybe want to learn about the crucible, but you're one of those kids that uh, likes to not read the material and you'd rather just hear a summary, maybe this can help you out. I don't know. You probably don't have the attention span for how long this lecture is going to be because it's going to be long. But by the end of it, you'll know about everything you need to know about Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And this is a play that Arthur Miller wrote in 1953. This is part of the American literature curriculum in most schools. Um, it seems to have kind of taken the place of The Scarlet Letter a little bit. I remember when I was in school, we read The Scarlet Letter, and when I started teaching, it seemed like all the textbooks had kind of moved to The Crucible, which I think is great. I think The Crucible is a much better work for high school kids to read and learn from. Not that The Scarlet Letter isn't a decent book. It is, but The, the Crucible is better. And The Crucible is this story of the Salem witch trials in the 1600s. 
And Arthur, Arthur Miller wrote this play to compare this historical event to the Red Scare in America, as well as other events throughout the history of the world. Whether it's the Soviets or the Americans or any other political group, the message of the play is this. Anyone who is convinced of their own holiness and equally convinced that their opponents are evil is in serious danger of committing horrible crimes. And when the group doing the persecuting is in the authority and control of the reins of government, they will use those powers to exact vengeance upon their enemies, often to the point of atrocities. The message here is that all witch hunts are political. And I think this is a very timely thing to read after... I'm going to try not to delve into politics too much, but most people heard the speech last week by our fearless sleeping leader, Sleepy Joe, and uh, kind of a spooky speech, really, with all of his... Uh, seemed very convinced of his own holiness and convinced that his opponents are evil. So... Uh, Anyways, as we read, you should try to kind of tie what we're talking about to the modern political landscape, because this story is a political story. Yes, it's about the Puritans in the 1600s in Salem, Massachusetts, but it's not about religion, it's about politics. And that's what you need to know going in. All right, let's talk about the setup of the story. This is one of the very few occasions where I think that the movie actually does a better job of introducing the story than the book, or in this case, the play. A movie was done of The Crucible. I don't remember when. I'm, I'm not going to look it up, but it was a while back. It was, I think, back in either the, the 90s or the 2000s. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis plays the main character, John Proctor. And Winona Ryder plays the... We're going to call her the antagonist. And the movie opens with all of these young girls in 1600 Salem running secretly out to the forest with one of the pastor's slaves. And the slave's name is Tituba. And Tituba is from uh, Barbados. And because she's from Barbados and she has this different background, this different culture, she kind of uh, she kind of flirts with the occult a little bit in the eyes of, at, at least the way all the Puritans see it. And so all these young teenage girls go out to the woods with her and they're kind of playing around at witchcraft and there's a big cauldron in the middle of this forest clearing and they're throwing frogs in it and they are they're telling Tituba to put a spell on different men to uh to love them and Tituba pulls out this chicken from a sack and she's kind of scaring all the little girls with it and then Abigail takes it a little too far when she takes the chicken and smashes its head against a rock and then rubs the blood all over her face in an obvious 
kind of she's actually trying to to call on these these evil spirits and the rest of the girls are kind of we're just kind of playing but as soon as abigail does that this kind of hysteria breaks out and all the girls start kind of screaming like they're at a rock concert and tearing their clothes off and dancing and wailing and the reason i like this better than the opening of the book or the play is because it shows you that the the witchcraft that's going on or the the thing that everybody's spooked about in Salem the idea that oh my gosh the the people are actively doing witchcraft and nothing can be more terrifying to a devout group of Christians in this time and place than somebody actively trying to to call on the powers of Satan and the reason I like it is because that's exactly what the girls are doing whether or not they know it whether or not they're actively trying it abigail is obviously trying to do that she's obviously trying to call on some sort of dark power to win her the heart of the man she loves which is john proctor now quick aside i already said that arthur miller wrote this play about the red scare and it's a play about politics. And I want to take a quick second to, to talk about the Red Scare. Because just like the intro of the movie, and also this is what happens before the opening act of the play, there really was something going on during the Red Scare. There's this, there's this truth to the Red Scare. There were communists operating in the U.S. at the time, and the people who were worried about communism had good reason to worry about communism. It was a genocidal, insane political ideology that was spreading like a deadly virus throughout most of the world at the time, in the, in the early to mid-1900s. And everywhere it went, communism brought tyranny and genocide. And Americans saw this, and they reacted to it. And I would argue that the reaction of the Red Scare was pretty tame compared to the threat posed by communist movements. And uh, th there's a reason the U.S. had a policy of containment when it came to communism that led us into war in Korea and again into war in Vietnam. And communism was, and still remains today, one of the most evil political movements that's ever existed on the face of the earth. It's fundamentally anti-moral and anti-Christian. The whole idea is born of envy and revenge, and it gets thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of innocent people killed every time it's implemented at scale. So I think the commies in America back then should probably count their lucky stars that worse didn't happen to them as a result of the Red Scare. Arguably, we'd probably be better off than we are right now if we'd been a little more hard-nosed against the commies back then. But, and here's the but, what happens is that when persecution starts, innocent people get caught up in it. And uh, we probably weren't so rough on communism during the Red Scare because of American ideas on freedom of speech and freedom of political expression or... Maybe it was because we'd seen what tyranny looked like in Germany. Maybe 
maybe there was just a lot more progressive lefty sentiment in the country at that time than people like to admit there was. Any which way, there was persecution that happened, and innocent people got caught up in the Red Scare, too. And Arthur Miller was one of those people who seemed to be innocent, but was caught up in the fervor of the Red Scare. He was actually brought before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he was told to give up the names of suspected communists in the circles that he traveled in. And Arthur Miller refused to do so. And by most accounts, Arthur Miller wasn't a communist. He just refused to do so. And then this story of the the crucible was kind of springboarded off of what happened to him. But just like I said before, like the beginning of the movie, there is witchcraft going on in Salem. And this is what everybody kind of glosses over all the worries about witchcraft are actually, in some ways, valid. It's true, there is witchcraft going on. Uh, but it isn't what everybody thinks it is, and you'll see why. First, before you see why, we're going to talk about the first character that you meet in the story. And the first character you meet is Reverend Paris. And I'm just going to read to you uh, from the introduction to Paris from the play. It says, At the time of the events, Paris was in his middle 40s. In history, he cut a villainous path, and there is very little good to be said for him. He believed he was being persecuted wherever he went, despite his best efforts to win people and God to his side. In meeting, he felt insulted if someone rose to shut the door without first asking his permission. He was a widower with no interest in children or talent with them. He regarded them as young adults, and until this strange crisis, he, like the rest of Salem, never conceived that the children were anything but thankful for being permitted to walk straight, eyes slightly lowered, arms at their side, and mouth shut until bidden to speak. So, that's Paris. He's this guy you meet, and he's he's offered up to you as a villain. He's not a good guy, and he is this kind of hard-nosed widower reverend who doesn't understand children, just like most of the people in Salem. And this is why what is going to ensue tricks people so badly, is these people don't understand uh, how some children can act, most of them. And they don't understand that all these just because we're living in this very Puritan religious world doesn't mean that teenage girls aren't going to be teenage girls. And there there's going to be this kind of rushing of hormones and all of that. And the, the Puritans aren't really thinking of that and they aren't really ready for it, I guess. They don't want to acknowledge it. And that's how Paris is. And Paris is the one that finds the girls dancing in the forest at the beginning of the play and the beginning of the film. And two of his daughters are part of this group of girls that he catches in the forest, obviously doing witchcraft. And the younger girl is so horrified that of what she's been caught doing, she basically 
goes into a, almost a state of comatose. Like she pretends that she is asleep and sick and can't wake up because she knows what kind of punishment is coming her way because of what she's been caught doing. She's the younger one and the older one is Abigail. And Abigail is uh, not Paris's true daughter. She is somebody, she's a girl that's been adopted into the family. And she has a very dark uh, history. Her parents were murdered by Indians when she was young. And uh, she was there to see it. And it's obviously left some sort of a scar. And like uh, Reverend Paris... Abigail Williams is absolutely just black-hearted and evil, and we'll see why as we go forward. Uh, I'm skipping a whole bunch about Paris because I want to try to keep this podcast to an hour or, I don't know, two hours probably is closer to what it's going to end up being. So, the play opens. The younger child is uh, pretending to be asleep, and Reverend Paris is going to beat her, basically, but then when she won't wake up, he calls for the doctor. And the doctor comes, and there's actually two girls who have been, who are exhibiting these same symptoms, both of them young and both of them uh, unable to wake, or so it seems. And Paris is... Um, perplexed by all this, but at the same time, he kind of understands that if anybody finds out about what he saw, about what he, what happened, and it's it's known that girls that are under his control and under his household are have been caught in the forest doing witchcraft, that he is absolutely done in this town as a reverend. He's going to be run out of town, and in fact. Many people in the town already don't like him because he is a very terrible reverend and a pretty awful person. So, of course, half the town does not like him already. And he understands how precarious his position is. And after just a couple scenes with with what's going on with the girls... Um, the, the idea of witchcraft comes up very quickly. And the idea is that the girls have been bewitched because the doctor can't find anything actually wrong with them. They're not running a fever. There's nothing kind of visibly wrong with them. They just won't get out of bed. And so, of course, the first thought isn't, oh, they are faking because they're scared they're going to get their asses whooped. The thought is, this must be some sort of witchcraft. And immediately, that's the rumor that goes around town. And Paris is berating Abigail out of the gate, trying to get her to kind of fess up to what was done in the forest. Um, and he's so taken aback by what he saw that he can't quite like bring himself to say everything that he saw. And I'll just kind of read part of it. Paris says, I cannot blink what I saw, Abigail, for my enemies will not blink. I saw a dress lying in the dr in the grass. Innocently, Abigail replies, a dress? 
Paris, it's very hard for him to say. I, a dress, and I thought I saw someone naked running through the trees. So you see that Paris is, this is a very proper Puritan culture, and the idea of somebody dancing naked in the forest, the idea of somebody dancing at all is, you know, verboten. You can't do that. You can't dance. You definitely can't dance naked for the devil in the forest. And so Paris is hammering on Abigail, trying to get something out of her so that when everybody starts getting after him about these questions, he has answers for them. And finally, Abigail lands on the only person that she can throw between herself and the wrath of her uh, uncle, I think it is, or his cousin, maybe. It's some relation, Paris, the guy who is her, you know, guardian at this point. And of course, the person that Abigail can throw between herself and Paris is Tichuba, the slave. She can blame Tichuba, because obviously Tichuba was the one singing her weird Barbados songs in the forest. Uh, they, you know, it wasn't Tichuba's idea, but Tichuba went along with it and kind of played ball, so that's who we're going to blame. And Abigail says, you know, it was all Tichuba's idea, it was all Tichuba's kind of witchcraft, and she, she dragged us in to the forest. And so, unlike, you know, Abigail or Betty, who's the, the younger sister, it's not just a whipping that Tichiba's going to get. Tichiba's life is immediately in danger with this charge of witchcraft. And Paris goes to Tichiba and they seize Tichiba and, uh, there is a pastor, a reverend, uh, that's of a higher kind of standing. He's basically a witch hunter, and he's been called in to to do an investigation of the witchcraft in Salem, and his name is Reverend Hale. And Reverend Hale is going to come, he's already on his way, and he's going to investigate and so Paris leaves Abigail and Betty alone, and all the other girls enter the scene that were in the woods. And they're all kind of arguing over what to do. And Mary Warren, who is kind of this unassuming, quiet, shy girl who really wasn't participating in the, in the circle dance in the woods, but was there and watching... She, tell, she tells Abigail that they, they need to kind of come clean about what they, what they did in the forest. And she says, we're only going to get, we're going to be whipped for dancing. Um, but if we, if we don't come clean, it's possible that we, that some of us or all of us could be hung. Because Mary Warren understands that a charge of witchcraft is a death sentence. And so she is trying to impress upon the group how dangerous their situation is. And Abigail and the other girls kind of disagree with her, especially Abigail. And Abigail tells her, like, we are not, we're not going to, we're not going to confess to everything that we did in the woods. 
um, we we might confess to the dancing, um, and all I told Paris was that we danced in the forest, and he doesn't need to know anything other than that. And at this point, Betty, the girl who's been pretending to be asleep, has woken up and is kind of conversing with the other girls, and she kind of tells uh, Abigail, she says, well, you drank blood, and you didn't tell him that. And Abigail gets very defensive and uh, tells Betty that she'll, don't you ever say that again. And Betty fires back and says, you did, though. You drank a charm to kill John Proctor's wife. Because Abigail is in love with John Proctor, but John Proctor is married. And at this point, Abigail, Abigail smashes her across the face, and then she turns to the rest of the girls, and she tells them, and I'll read this from Abigail, she says, Now look, all of you, we danced, and Tituba conjured Ruth Putnam's dead sisters, and that is all. And mark this, let either of you breathe a word or the edge of a word about the other things, and I will come to you in the black of some terrible night, and I will bring a pointy reckoning that will shudder you, and you know I can do it. I saw Indians smash my dear parents' heads on the pillow next to mine, and I have seen some reddish work done at night, and I can make you wish that you had never seen the sun go down. So Abigail threatens all of them with murder if they tell what has happened. So this is setting the stage for, for all of them to fall in line behind Abigail. And then, uh, after this little scene, we meet the protagonist, John Proctor, because John Proctor has heard what's going on in town, and he's come to town to kind of see what the fuss is about. And he enters the room, and this is the description of John Proctor. Proctor was a farmer in his middle 30s, he need not have been a partisan of any faction in the town, but there is evidence to suggest that he had a sharp and biting way with hypocrites. He was the kind of man, powerful of body, even-tempered, and not easily led, who could not refuse support to partisans without drawing their deepest resentment. In Proctor's presence, a fool felt his foolishness instantly, and a Proctor is always marked for cal uh, calumny, therefore. So... John Proctor is this guy who everybody kind of respects. He's a strong, capable man, and he doesn't suffer fools very well. And if somebody wants him to be on their side and he's not, they take it very personally. But there's this... John Proctor isn't all good. There's a secret that John Proctor has, and it is a the reason that Abigail drank this charm to kill his wife is because Abigail worked for John Proctor and his wife for a while, and John Proctor's wife uh, was sick during the time, and she's a very devout Puritan woman, and because she's a very devout Puritan woman, John Proctor didn't get much love, physical love, from his wife, and John Proctor's fault is that he fell into temptation and had relations with Abigail. And this is the history of John Proctor and Abigail. And John Proctor kind of 
knows right off the bat that whatever foolishness is going on in town, uh, Abigail is probably at the root of it because she is she is a troublemaker. She's kind of fiery. And, and that's part of the reason uh, John Proctor was drawn to her in the first place. And in the beginning, he kind of sees this whole thing as just kind of a silly, goofy thing that's going on in town, almost like this sideshow that's going on, and he doesn't put any stock into it. Uh, so he he talks to Abigail alone to try to figure out what is going on, and she tells him part of the truth. She tells him that they were dancing in the woods and that uh, Paris found them, and that's what has happened. And John Proctor's reaction to this is like, he kind of laughs, and he tells her that she's going to be clapped in the stocks before she's 20. And it's he's almost flirting with her, but not quite. And she tries to kind of flirt back with him, and he tells her that all of that's done with. He is he's a married man and he's not going to he's not going to kind of engage in any sort of sinful behavior anymore because he he feels very guilty for what he did in the past. And she kind of says, Well, didn't you come to town to see me? And John Proctor says, No, I came to town to see what kind of foolishness your uncle is up to. I have no, I have nothing to do with you anymore. You need to put all of that out of your mind. It was just kind of like a lust and you need to, you need to move on because it, nothing is going to come of this. Um, and Abigail is obviously jilted and she's upset and she doesn't like what she's hearing. And this is going to be something where, uh, John Proctor doesn't quite understand that fooling around with this very young girl is something that he might have not felt any sort of romantic connection. It was all physical for him, but for her, that is not the case. And she is deeply in love or in lust with John Proctor, but he's not having any of it. And this is kind of the root of the the hatred that Abigail has for John Proctor's wife. Now, as they're having this argument, more commotion breaks out in the kind of upper room of Paris's house, and Betty is goes to, like, screaming and yelling. She screams so loud that she breaks up kind of the church service that's going on, and everybody runs out of the church and sees Betty, like, climbing out the window and screaming, this doesn't do good, I mean, it doesn't paint a good picture for what's going on, and there's a big to-do in town. And they all run to the side of Betty, who is suddenly awake, and everybody is, you know, on edge, thinking it's witchcraft. And this old woman, Rebecca Nurse, who's another main character, she comes in, she is... 72 years old, she's old, she's white-haired, uh, she's leaning on a walking stick, and she has, like, everybody in town loves Rebecca Nurse. She is loved by all, and she is kind of this very grandmotherly figure. And while everybody else is yelling witchcraft, witchcraft, Rebecca 
kind of shakes her head and says, no, this is just uh, a silly little girl being silly. And I would know because I've had so many grandchildren and they will they'll just run you bow-legged when they're in their, their silly seasons. And Rebecca is able to kind of calm Betty down by her bedside and in this very kind of grandmotherly way, kind of calms her down and she goes back to sleep and everybody's kind of surprised by it. And this is where Rebecca tells everybody that, that you know, this is... This is just how kids act sometimes. And uh, she also has a husband. His name is Francis. And they are friends with John Proctor. Um, And the next character you meet is kind of this grumpy old man named Giles Corey, who's kind of weird, a little bit eccentric. And he is also a friend of John Proctor and the nurses... And you're starting to see kind of the the political lines that divide uh, Salem. And on one side you have uh, you have John Proctor, and you have the nurses, and you have Giles Corey, who none of them very much like the Reverend Paris. And on the other side you have the Reverend Paris and kind of a richer landowner guy named Putnam. And you have Mr. Putnam and Mrs. Putnam. And they are both kind of on the side of Paris. Mr. Putnam is a backhanded, conniving type person who owns a lot of land and is kind of hungry to get more land from other people. And he feels like he should be more respected than he is in town because his family has been there for so long. And so you have the Putnams and you have Paris and then you have uh, John Proctor and the nurses, and you have Giles Corey, who are all a little bit disenchanted with Paris, and none of them are really buying into the hysteria of uh, witchcraft. And at the same time, the rest of the town is really buying into the witchcraft thing, and everybody's very worried about everything. And so obviously, a argument breaks out between the parties. And Reverend Paris rails on about how uh, everybody's out to get him. And there's this kind of, there's a secret group that is after him. And Proctor like jokingly says, uh, I, I hope I can, what does he say? Let me find it real quick. He says, why then? I must find it and join it. And he is obviously being sarcastic, but this kind of shocks everyone because that's really not something to say to the the reverend of your community because the, the title of reverend and the position of reverend holds a whole bunch of power in a community where the religious order is also the government. And uh, Rebecca Nurse tries to kind of calm John Proctor down and he's, and she says, like, don't break charity with your minister. Uh, you're not, you're better than that, basically. And and Proctor says, I have a, I have crops to deal to to deal with and lumber to deal with, and uh, I'm I'm leaving. I'm gonna go home and do my do my work. And so uh, John Proctor is trying to leave, but the argument's still kind of 
going on. And Proctor's arguing with Paris. Putnam is arguing with uh, Giles. Putnam is arguing with Proctor over some sort of land dispute. And there's all of this, you know, one group is threatening to sue another group. And and there's this back and forth. And during this big kind of loud argument, enter the Reverend John Hale, the guy we have been waiting for, the kind of witch hunter guy. And I'll read from the play. Mr. Hale is nearing 40. He is tight-skinned. He's eager-eyed, and he's intellectual. Um, This is a beloved errand for him. On being called here to ascertain witchcraft, he felt the pride of a specialist whose unique knowledge has at last been publicly called for. Like almost all men of learning, he has spent a good deal of time pondering the invisible world, especially since he had himself encountered a witch in his parish not long before. That woman, however, turned out to be a mere pest under his searching scrutiny, and the child she had allegedly been afflicted recovered her normal behavior after Hale had given her his kindness and a few days to rest in his own house. However, that experience never raised a doubt in his mind as to the reality of the underworld and the existence of Lucifer's many-faced lieutenants. So, the introduction of Hale, he's this he is a pastor, he is somebody who has dealt with witchcraft before, and he has, more importantly, Hale has dealt with a situation where somebody had cried witch against a woman, and Hale had found out that the woman was not really a witch, the woman was just somebody who was kind of disliked in the community, and she wasn't really afflicting any children. But that doesn't mean that Hale doesn't believe in witchcraft or the possibility of witchcraft. And so he is here um, to ascertain whether or not there is the work of the devil going on in Salem. Now, I want to read a little bit now from after Hale is introduced. And we talk about the devil a little bit. Um, You have... An interlude by Arthur Miller kind of narrating the play, and he talks about the idea of the devil. And I want to read it because this is kind of where you see uh, what I I see as a flaw in Arthur Miller's uh, worldview and his, his philosophy. Um, but I want to read it just so that you can hear it. And he says, Like Reverend Hale and others in this stage, we conceive the devil as a necessary part of a respectable view of cosmetology. cosmology. Ours is a divided empire in which certain ideas and emotions and actions are of God, and their opponents are of Lucifer. It is impossible for most men to conceive of a morality without sin, as of the earth without sky. Since 1692, the great but superficial change has wiped out God's beard and the devil's horns, but the world is still gripped between two diametrically opposed absolutes. The concept of unity, in which positive and negative are attributes of the same force, in which good and evil are relative, ever-changing, and always joined in the same phenomenon, such is a concept still reserved to the physical sciences and to the few who have grasped the history of ideas. When it is recalled that until the Christian era the underworld was never regarded as a hostile area, 
that all gods were useful and essentially friendly to man despite the occasional lapses when we see the steady and methodological inculcation into humanity of the idea of man's worthlessness until redeemed, the necessity of the devil may become evident as a weapon, a weapon designed and used time and time again in every age to whip men into surrender to a particular church or church state. Now, this is what I find so interesting about this play in Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, this is the reason people called Arthur Miller and were worried Arthur Miller was a communist. And he obviously could have been a communist because it was never really... He never came out and said, yeah, I'm a devout communist. He didn't say it that way, but a lot of people say he was. I don't know whether whether or not he was a communist. I do know he was an atheist, which I think is very interesting that an atheist could write a play that so clearly shows the work of the devil without abs- without actually perceiving the work of the devil himself. And you can see it in this little uh, thing that he writes in here about the idea that, uh, that morality and uh, good and evil are relative. This is a very left-wing, progressive um, idea that does have some roots in communism, but this idea that good and bad and good and evil are relative and subjective and not objective is blows my mind that somebody who wrote such a clearly a, a play about the evils of mankind and lived in a time where he did see the evils of mankind uh, could could possibly not see the actions of the devil right in front of his face. But that was who Arthur Miller was. So there, this is why uh, a lot of kind of conservative Christian types don't really like Arthur Miller and don't really like this play. But I feel like when it comes to understanding plays and literature and kind of seeing them for for their value, even if you don't agree with who wrote them, there are some like that, and this is one of them. Because even if even if Arthur Miller doesn't realize it, this entire uh, this entire play that he sets up and and all the terrible things that happen within the play, uh, it's even even the idea that the the girls were practicing witchcraft. Arthur Miller probably viewed as kind of like a, a funny, joking thing that the girls were doing in the forest that had no sort of of power or or seriousness to it. But then the entire play is the girls becoming more and more dark and evil throughout and getting away with it the entire time. And he has John Proctor as this obvious kind of uh, a Christ figure. Um, but, you know, when I say a Christ figure, I mean in the, in the literature sense. Obviously, Christ was a blameless person who, who never sinned. And John Proctor is somebody who has sinned but has repented 
but anyway, it's uh, John Proctor's whole character is somebody who who gives himself for others. And that's, I guess, kind of a spoiler, but we'll get there. Um, so, back to the play. Hale comes in, and Hale kind of takes the the control of the situation, and he has all these books with him, and he's he's somebody who seems very serious. And before he leaves, uh, Proctor tells him, and this is a quote from Proctor, he says, I've heard that you're a sensible man, Mr. Hale, and I hope you'll leave some of it in Salem. And this is Proctor's kind of parting word with with everybody he's been dealing with, is this, I've heard you're a good guy, I've heard you're not an idiot, I hope that you leave some of your your common sense in Salem, and you don't let this get out of hand. And this kind of leaves an impact on Hale, because uh, he doesn't know a whole lot about Salem, but he's heard of the nurses. He's especially heard of Rebecca Nurse, who's very highly spoken of. And uh, he's heard of Proctor, and he's going to hear more about Proctor from all the people he talks to. And so Proctor leaves then, and Hale is left to deal with, uh, with all the stuff that's going on. And we're already 45 minutes in, so I'm going to have to skip a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but when you get a chance, you definitely need to at least watch this movie because it will fill in these gaps for you. So where do we pick up from here? Hale talks to Putnam. He talks to the Reverend Paris. And he he explains to them that he's going to get to the truth of everything. He's going to figure out whether or not is this is witchcraft or whether or not this is you know like his last thing that he dealt with just something some kind of disagreement within a community and uh very shortly after this there is kind of this interrogation of tichiba because tichiba is who the blame falls on because abigail doesn't want to take the blame and there's this brilliant scene with Tichuba and uh, Hale and Paris. And they drag her out kind of like uh, behind the barn and Hale is interrogating her and Paris is interrogating her. And Tichuba is smart enough to know that she's in danger of dying here and now. And they're back and forth with what happened in the forest. And uh, Hale asks her, have you enlisted these children for the devil? And Tichuba says, no, I don't deal with the devil. And argue, argue, argue back and forth. Until finally, Tichuba sees the writing on the wall. And she understands that there is really no way out of this for her. And she is going to become this scapegoat that is going to be hung for this imagined crime because she understands that Abigail is offering her up as the kind of sacrifice to save all the rest of them. And so Tichiba finally kind of looks around, sees what the score is, and decides she has to save herself. And the only way she can save herself 
is just like Abigail did. She has to put somebody between herself and this accusation. So finally, you see Hale talking to her, and he says, Who came to you with the devil? Were there two, three, four, how many? And Tichuba says, after kind of sitting there and thinking, she says, There was four. There was four. And Paris is pressing, and he says, Who? Who? Their names? Tell me their names. And Tichuba, and this is kind of an interesting part, Tichuba kind of like has this outburst, and she looks very angrily at... uh at Mr. Paris, and she says, oh, how many times he bid me to kill you, Mr. Paris. She says, uh, he say Mr. Paris must be killed. Mr. Paris, no goodly man. Mr. Paris, mean man and no gentleman. And he bid me rise out of my bed and cut your throat. And you kind of see Tichuba kind of releasing, like there's a lot of truth in what she's saying because Paris is a very shitty person and he's not a very good master to her as a slave but she kind of plays it off and she says but i tell him no i don't hate that man i don't want to kill that man but he says you work for me tichuba i make you free i give you a pretty dress and i put you way up high and you're gonna fly back to barbados and so tichuba finally after uh and she's been prompted already several times to say someone's name and this person is named Sarah Good and Sarah Good is kind of this nasty lady who lives around town and uh the lady Mrs. Putnam Goody Putnam is how they say Mrs. is Goody Goody Putnam has prompted her a couple times to say uh Sarah Good's name and Tituba finally says it she says I Sarah Good is one of the witches and Goody Osborne, who is another kind of like a drunk, malfeasant lady in the community. And now we have we have named two people. Um, and Hale sees this as reality. In Hale's mind, he's getting a true confession. And he is fooled by Tituba's uh confession because for some reason he doesn't realize that Tichib is just trying to save herself. And as Abigail watches and sees what's going on, Abigail, who is an evil, terrible character, and if you if you read this carefully, you'll see why. Because Abigail sees what Tichib is doing and sees an opportunity. And this opportunity is for Abigail to get rid of people she doesn't like. And so she starts screaming and she says, I want to open myself. I want the light of God. So Abigail's playing off of Tichuba's confession and says, basically, I want to, I want to save myself too. I want to confess. And she says, I saw Sarah Good with the devil. I saw Goody Osborne with the devil. But she's just reinforcing the two names that have already been said. And then she says, I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. And then, all of a sudden, Betty rises from her bed and decides to join in on this hysteria. And she says, I saw George Jacobs with the devil. I saw Goody Howe with the devil. 
And Paris is surprised that Betty's suddenly awake. And he says, oh, you know, glory to God. It's broken. The spell is broken. And then Betty is still yelling hysterically. And she says, I saw Martha Bellows with the devil. Abigail says, I saw Goody Sibbler with the devil. And she's like rising to this. It says she's rising to a great glee. And then Putnam says, the marshal, call the marshal, call the sheriff. We have to arrest these people. And Betty, I saw Alice Barrow with the devil. And I saw Goody Hawkins with the devil. I saw Goody Bibber with the devil. I saw Goody Booth with the devil. And there's these ecstatic cries as the curtain falls on this scene. And you finally see what's going on here. Abigail and then Betty as well see this opportunity that Tichuba opened to call witch and cry cry witch on people that they don't like. And suddenly, this thing that has turned into I have to transfer blame from myself to someone else has turned suddenly into there's several people who have been indicated as in concert with the devil. And this is a terrible sin, of course, in the Puritan church. And this goes back to what I was kind of saying earlier, that there's a, there's a modern parallel to this. Because oftentimes when you see people involved in kind of these sort of witch hunts about, I don't know, let's just take uh, Joe Biden and the left, for example, this week and all of their, oh, Trump wants to overthrow the government and Trump supporters are against democracy and they're they're trying to to overthrow democracy and take over the country and they're going to enslave everybody which which they're which what you see is the people who are guilty in the first act are the ones who are claiming everybody else is guilty and i think this is very poetic and it's what usually happens in situations like this it's the people who are guilty of the sin themselves who are usually calling out the sin in others and trying to get the others shut up. And I see this very clearly in the left, especially on these calls of like, whether or not you like Trump. This idea that, uh, oh, the Republicans and the right are the dangerous ones because they want to take over control of everything and they want to set up this this terrible, you know, totalitarian dictator state that Trump is going to be some sort of emperor and we've got to stop them. And to me, it blows my mind because in all honesty, the only thing, as far as I can see, that the right side of the political spectrum wants to restrict is abortion. That's it. That's the only thing I see the the right wanting to restrict. Um, maybe hard drug use, but but other than that, I don't see a lot. But when it comes to the other side, uh, the left wants to increase taxes on. They say just the middle class and the, the upper class, or they say just the rich, but they. They're going to raise taxes on everybody, middle class and lower class included. That's what they really want. They want to tell you what kind of car to drive. They want to tell you what kind of food to eat. 
you know, they want to tell you to live in a pod and eat bugs, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. It's the left that is kind of in this, this authoritarian, totalitarian sin, but they are, they are blaming the right for it. And which is why I think this is beautifully ironic that Arthur Miller kind of from a leftist persuasion writes this, this, uh, story from a leftist persuasion back in the fifties when, when it was the right that was kind of going after the left. And now today you see it's the left that's going after the right and uh, on the verge of witch trials in our own right in 2022. And you see that, uh, his message is still true. It's, it's not, you know, it's always political. And if you think you are the righteous party, you're the one who's in danger of being the bad guy here. And if anybody thinks they're righteous in 2022, who, buddy? It's, it's the left. I mean, it can't be anybody else but the left. It's, it's the side that thinks that they are great and righteous and good, and everybody that opposes them is evil. And I'm, I'm going to continue with the play until I get any deeper into that, because I said I wouldn't go too deep into politics. So that's the end of that act, and now we move on to Act 2. So the next act, I want to try to rush through a little bit because we're getting long already, but uh, it's Proctor and his wife. Elizabeth. And John Proctor and Elizabeth are kind of in their house and they're having a discussion. And you see that there's there's this friction between John Proctor and Elizabeth. And obviously it has to do with, you know, several months before John Proctor has been unfaithful and Elizabeth knows it. And there she there's been no forgiveness yet from Elizabeth. And John he kind of resents her for, not so much for her unforgiveness, but for how cold she is. And kind of, he he views this as kind of the reason he sinned in the first place was her coldness. And there's obvious friction. And they go back and forth on this for a while, but I'm going to skip that. And we'll get to the, the part that has to do with the story. And finally, Elizabeth tries to explain that what's going on in town. Because John's been trying to ignore everything that's been going on. And time has passed since we left the, the fevered scene where they're calling out all the names of the witches. And so I'll read a little bit from this uh, here. And Elizabeth says, Aye, it's a proper court they have now. They've sent four judges out of Boston, she says, talking about Mary Warren weighty magistrates of the general court, and at the head of them sits the deputy governor of the province. Proctor is astonished. Why, she's mad. Elizabeth, I would go to God she were. There be fourteen people in the jail now, she says. Proctor simply looks at her, unable to grasp it. And they'll be tried, and the court have power to hang them too, she says. Proctor scoffs, but without conviction. Ah, they'd never hang. Elizabeth. The deputy governor promises hanging if they'll not confess, John. The town's gone wild, I think. 
She speak of Abigail, and I thought she were a saint to hear her. Abigail brings the other girls into the court, and where she walks, the crowd will part like the sea for Israel. And folks are brought before them, and if they scream and howl and fall on the floor, the persons clapped in the jail for bewitching them. Proctor's wide-eyed. Oh, it is a black mischief. Elizabeth. I think you must go to Salem, John. He turns to her. I think so. You must tell them that this is a fraud. Proctor, thinking beyond this. I, it surely is. Let you go to Ezekiel Cheever. He knows you well. And tell him what she said to you last week in her uncle's house. She said that it had not to do with witchcraft, did she not? So... In this scene, you have Elizabeth telling John that he needs to go to the court and explain that all of this is bullcrap. And John is not super willing to do that because John knows if he exposes his relationship to Abigail, not only is his reputation ruined, not only is his marriage possibly ruined, Uh, But adultery in this society is grounds for being thrown in jail. Proctor knows that as well. And so Proctor has to think on it. And Elizabeth is trying to prod him into it because she believes that it is... It's worth doing because she believes that people are going to die if he doesn't. And... John Proctor kind of knows this, but he doesn't want to admit to himself yet that it's gone that bad, that, that things are, have gotten that crazy. Um, he doesn't want to believe that his society has gotten to the point where it's going to start killing people on the word of Abigail Williams and these children. And Elizabeth, to her credit, kind of understands that that's where this is going. And then they argue a little more back and forth over Abigail and over other stuff. And uh, you see that there's a lot of friction here. And Proctor is angry at Elizabeth for being so harsh to him. And Proctor kind of explains that every single thing he's done since this terrible thing happened has been to please Elizabeth and to try to win back her favor and and gain forgiveness from her. And this is where you kind of have to understand a little bit about the Christian morality to understand where John Proctor is coming from, because John Proctor understands that he is a sinner and understands that what he's done is a sin and it was a terrible sin. But he also believes that the Christian thing for Elizabeth to do, since he has confessed and he has done everything to to try to work his way back into her good graces, Proctor believes that the Christian thing for his wife to do is to forgive him and stop judging him. And so Proctor says, uh, no more. I should have roared you down when first you told me your suspicion, but I wilted and like a Christian I confessed. Some dream I had must have mistaken you for God that day, but you're not. You're not, and let you remember it. Let you look sometimes for the goodness in me, and judge me not. Elizabeth, I do not judge you. 
the magistrate sits in your heart that judges you. I never thought you but a good man, if only somewhat bewildered. And Proctor laughs, and he says, Oh, Elizabeth, your justice would freeze beer. So, they are still arguing, and Proctor tells her that she she is setting herself up like God, but she is not God because she doesn't forgive. And Elizabeth claims that she doesn't judge him, but Proctor laughs because he knows, like, she is judging him. And he understands that her... Her justice is is feeling more like revenge at this point. And then Mary Warren gets back. And Mary Warren has come back from the court. And Proctor is is still angry, but he asks her what what's went on. And Mary Warren, um, she explains that several more people have been uh, convicted and she explains that Goody Osborne will hang the next day. And so finally we get to the point where they're, they are going to start hanging people. And Mary Warren says that Goody, Pro- Goody Osborne will hang, but uh, Sarah Good won't hang because Sarah Good confessed. And Proctor asks, what did she confess to? And Mary Warren says that she was in league with the devil. And you're starting to see what's going on here. If the people confess to being what the court claims they are, they don't have to die. But if they refuse to confess, to swear that they have been in league with the devil, then they must hang. And this is especially horrifying and sad, because if you are a true Christian and you truly believe in your doctrine, and somebody tells you to renounce the name of God and confess that you are in league with the devil, there is nothing you can do except deny that you are in league with the devil in order to to save your soul. Because if if you are somebody who is a follower of Christ and an authority demands that you denounce Christ, the Christian thing to do is to not denounce Christ. And in confessing, you are denouncing Christ. So what you see is the court has set these people up with kind of an impossible decision. If they are somebody who is actually religious, they're telling them to forego their soul in order to save their mortal life. And if you can imagine... In a Puritan society where people are deep, deeply religious, the, the want to, to save your own skin as opposed to your own soul, if you actually believe in the soul and eternity, would be a very difficult decision to make. And a lot of people will choose their everlasting soul over mortal life if they actually believe in God and believe in eternity. And this is something I also think that Arthur Miller did a really good job in in writing this, even though he obviously didn't understand it very well. But uh again I don't I don't see how he didn't see this if he he writes this so well and so many people are saying, you know, I will not confess to being in league with the devil. 
And he, ch- I think what's going on is he chalks it all up to just kind of, of stubbornness and the human will to defy authority. But uh, I don't buy that. Um, just because you would have to be a very strong person to agree to die for your beliefs if you don't actually believe in them. And I think that uh, that most people are not that strong. And I think this is something that most modern people can't even comprehend. Because I, th- I think if you put most modern Christians in this same scenario, um, I think most modern Christians are confessing. Because the the depth of faith and the strength of faith is not what it was in... Uh, more devout times than what we're seeing now. But again, I'm kind of off track. So we're back in John Proctor's house with his wife and with Mary Warren, and we're learning that people are starting to be hung. And Proctor can't hardly believe it, and he he finally starts raging at Mary Warren, and he says he's going to whip her, and Mary Warren says, yeah, I'm not going to let you whip me anymore because I am an official of the court. And if you do, she kind of, she tells him, she threatens him basically with like, uh, if you beat me, I'm going to possibly say that you are in league with the devil. And Proctor responds saying like, I'll whip the devil out of you. And he raises his whip. And this is when Mary Warren points at Elizabeth and says, I saved her life today. And you see where this is going. Elizabeth Proctor has been accused of witchcraft. And everybody knows who's accused her of it. It's obviously Abigail Williams. Because Abigail wants her dead. Because she thinks if she dies, then she has kind of a shot at getting with John Proctor which is insane, but that's what she believes. And at the height of the argument, as seems to be tradition for him, Reverend Hale shows up at John Proctor's house. And he's there because he's going around the countryside and he's trying to gauge the devoutness of these people who have been accused of witchcraft. Because you're starting to see that Hale is wondering if this is all legitimate. There is a doubt in Hale about what's going on because of the type of people that have been accused. In the beginning, when it was just Sarah Good and Goody Osborne who who had been accused, Hale was kind of just on board because these two women were were lower class kind of not very religious, not very good people. But suddenly, Elizabeth Proctor is accused. And the thing that really kind of has blown Hale's mind is Rebecca Nurse has been also accused of witchcraft. And Hale is trying to figure out if this is, if what he's doing is right. And so he comes to talk to John Proctor and Elizabeth, about their faith. He's trying to gauge if they are good Christians. And 
the knee-jerk reaction to this is is to dislike Hale. But in the context of what's going on in the story, this is Hale being a kind of genuine character and trying to discern the truth the way he sees it based on his beliefs and his faith. And so Hale isn't a isn't a bad guy here. So we go back and forth with Hale talking to Proctor and Elizabeth about their faith. And Proctor uh, Proctor finally gets pretty fed up with it. And he says, I never knew until tonight that the world has gone daft with this nonsense. And Hale says, nonsense. Mister, I have myself examined Tituba, Sarah Good, and numerous others who have confessed to dealing with the devil. They have confessed it. And Proctor says, and why not, if they must hang for denying it? There are them that will swear to anything before they'll hang. Have you ever thought of that? And Hale replies that he has, but there's a kind of a pause there. And you see that, like, John Proctor's common sense is that, do you not think that people would deny God if it meant saving their own life? And Hale says, well, yeah, I have thought about that. But in Hale's view, the idea of denying God in order to save your own life is kind of crazy because he's so devout. And he doesn't realize that other people kind of aren't as devout. And so Hale is really wrestling with what's going on here. And that is when, shortly after, along comes the sheriff. Uh, Ezekiel, or I don't know if it's Sheriff, but uh, Ezekiel Cheever. And they are there to arrest uh, Elizabeth Proctor because she has been charged with witchcraft. And when they show up, Francis Nurse is with them and he comes a little early and he, he kind of shows up to plead with John because Rebecca Nurse has been arrested. And after they arrest Rebecca Nurse, they show up at uh, John's house shortly after. Uh, Francis and Giles do, because Giles' wife has also been accused of witchcraft. And the, the reality is starting to set in for John Proctor that the, the people who are in charge of all this are trying to get rid of their political enemies and people who own land that Putnam wants because Putnam is killing his neighbors for land because if he kills his neighbors if he calls witch and then suddenly George Jacobs is murdered uh, for being a witch he can buy that land on the cheap and that is what's going on and slowly Proctor kind of comes to terms with this and the marshal shows up with all of his men and their uh they're armed, and they, after a, a scene of kind of some, something to do with a doll, you'll have to watch the movie or read the book, they accuse uh, Elizabeth Proctor of witchcraft and arrest her. And they take her away, they hold John back in the door, and, and uh, that's kind of the end of that act. Well, that's not the complete end, so they take her out, and then... Uh, Proctor has to make this decision. And his decision is he's going to have to go to the court. 
and he's going to have to to basically sacrifice his own self and his own sin and confess to what he's done in order to destroy Abigail and Abigail's uh, power over the court. So they take her away and um, Proctor has this scene with Mary Warren at the end that is kind of the climax of this of this act. And Proctor says, you're coming to the court with me, Mary. You will tell the court. And Mary says, I cannot charge murder on Abigail. Proctor, moving menacingly towards her, you will tell the court how that poppet came here and who stuck the needle in. Mary Warren, she'll kill me for saying it. Proctor continues toward her. Abby will charge lechery on you, Mr. Proctor. Proctor halting. She told you. Mary, I've known it, sir. She'll ruin you with it. I know she will. Proctor hesitates with a deep hatred for himself. And then Proctor enters into his really kind of the famous climax, or one of the climaxes. Good. Then her saintliness is done with. We will slide together into our pit, and you will tell the court what you know. Mary Warren in terror. I cannot. They'll turn on me. Proctor strides and crutches her. He's repeating. She's repeating. I cannot. I cannot. Proctor, my wife will never die for me. I will bring your guts into your mouth, but that goodness will not die for me. Mary, struggling to escape. I cannot. I cannot. Proctor, grasping her by the throat as though he would strangle her. Make your peace with it. Now hell and heaven grapple on our backs, and all our old pretenses ripped away. Make your peace. He throws her to the floor where she sobs. I cannot, I cannot. And now, half to himself, staring and turning to the open door. Peace. It is a providence, and no great change. We are only what we always were, but naked now. He walks as though through a great horror facing the open sky. Naked, and the wind, God's icy wind, will blow. And that's the end of Act 2, and we're an hour and 18 minutes in, and I think I'm going to do this one in two episodes. I didn't think I was going to do two. I thought I could do it in one, but uh, that obviously isn't going to happen. So, stay tuned for Part 2 of The Crucible. This will be Part 1. I'll catch you next time on the Capo Podcast.